Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double-Edge Double Bill, where you get two film and or media discussions for the price of one, which is nothing. Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to randomly select the yin and yang of a double feature. One will have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for each episode. Let the chaos begin. I am vengeance. I am the night. I am Thomas Mariani. It's I am Adam Thomas. People like Adam Thomas are here to tell you that good is great and bad is not great. Oh, God. And joining us coming uh, from the halls of Arkham Asylum is Mr. Sam Brutuxen. Sam, how are you doing? Hold on, this is Batman. I'm coming. Oh, 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 where's, where's Scarecrow? Oh, God. Oh, I'm sorry. Our guest is actually Mr. Christian Bale, everybody. Oh, God. Oh, oh this is bad. I have this weird Batman voice and I'm out of breath. Actually, that's a great impression of Pete Holmes' impression of Christian Bale from the sketches. <laughs> which you've never seen those. Those are great sketches uh, from, like, co- college humor and shit. Uh, Pat and Oswald plays the Penguin. They're great. Um, but why are we talking about Batman? Well, we're not just talking about Batman because our topic for this week in honor of Aquaman is coming out when we're releasing this. We are doing a, an episode all about DC Comics adaptations, which there's a large amount of them. And I'm going to go right off the top here and say this was the hardest one for me to pick two bad ones on because right. there are a ton of them from 2000 to now. Well, I mean, <laughs> not just from 2000 because interestingly, before Marvel took over, really the only comic book movies were DC movies because the Superman mm-hmm. movies in the 70s and 80s. And then leading into Batman movies in the 80s and 90s. And then finally we got, like, what, Steel? <laughs> At some point oh, in the middle of the Thank God for Steel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> thank, indeed. Uh, Sam, Hex. <laughs> well, we discussed that previously. But Sam, are, are you a fan of DC Comics adaptations? I'm a fan of Steel. I mean, are we going to talk about Steel? Because I'll talk about Steel. <laughs> the good and bad movie are Steel, guys. Never mind our gimmick. God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be the Rashomon of discussions where it's steal from a good and a bad perspective. The Alpha and the Omega is steal. <laughs> but for those who don't know, our gimmick for every episode is both come to the table with two movies based on a, the general topic, but we don't know what those two movies are from each person. One has two good movies, in this case, me, for this week. Adam has two bad, but we both assign those movies that we have numbers between 1 and 10, and usually we would trade off on picking a number between 1 and 10 to decide the good and bad feature. But when we have a guest like Mr. Bertuxen here, he gets to do the picking. So, Sam, for my two good choices, between 1 and 10. All right, four. At number five, I did have a Batman movie, but I think a very um, underappreciated one, especially because it doesn't have any live actor in it. Because it only has animated characters. Yes, it is Batman Mask of the Phantasm. <gasps> Good yep. call. 
Yep, celebrating its 25th anniversary. Sweet. I'm super excited to rewatch that. And then, to be fair, at number nine, I had one that I think is also underappreciated, but more because of the weird context of how it was put out, the Richard Donner cut of Superman 2. Oh, no, that's a good call, too. I, I, I prefer the Richard Donner cut. Way, way better. <laughs> yep. Um, but now, Sam, number between one and ten for Adam's bad choices. Time to triple that four into an eight. Okay, kind of funny. I'm mirroring Thomas here. At number nine, I have a Batman movie, The Dark Knight Rises. Oh, okay. Yeah, with Bane. Yeah. <laughs> sad this isn't steel for both sides. I know, I am too now. At number two, also to mirror Thomas, I had a Superman movie, Superman Returns. Okay, the Brian Singer. Oh. Maybe it's better we didn't discuss a Brian Singer movie on the show. Yeah, as soon as, uh, I, said, as, soon as I said it, my throat caught me. <laughs> so, so I guess it's not DC movies, guys. It's Batman movies. It's our Batman yeah. episode, Batman. Fairly, DC is always Batman. And mainly, I don't... I'll, I'll say this up front. I don't totally hate Dark Knight Rises myself. We'll put a pin in that, and we will discuss all that in a bit. But Sam, thank you for joining us. And once again, you are at Protection all over the internet. Yes? I just wanted to watch Steel. <laughs> so, so a little 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 guy like me just everyone just steal also yes you can just find me on anywhere on internet but still still what i said in the last episode don't pay attention to that i love you man i i, I want to have you back thomas never again oh the good thing he couldn't hear that because sam's bat tootsieing out of here at the <laughs> moment and uh we got a bat tootsie under our double feature right after this old chums America's most exciting and legendary motion picture hero, like you've never seen him before. The Bat! Now, the Dark Knight confronts his newest and most menacing villain. I want you. And faces his greatest danger. Can't be too careful with all those weirdos around. Batman, Mask of the Phantasm, coming for a Christmas you'll never forget. And we are back from our Caped Crusader double cinematic experience. And uh, we brought along another inmate from uh, Arkham Asylum uh, as a new guest. Uh, You might recognize him from our animation episode several episodes back. Mr. Scott Johnson. Scott, welcome. Hello. uh, I'm worried to be here. I heard what happened to the last guy is I found him in a coma in a hospital with a big smile on his face just singing, Every which way but loose, every which way but loose. Yeah, Sam has been affected severely by that. I think we all have. I, I think we, yes, that's true. We've been humming in our yeah. sleep. It's nightmarish. But, yeah. uh, Scott, when we asked to have you back on, I gave you a list of topics that we do for any of our guests, and you immediately jumped on the DC Films bandwagon. Why uh, DC Film Adaptations? I think, like everyone else in America, a big aspect of my love of cartoons came from superheroes, especially because in the 90s, Probably the best aspect of it was the run of really fantastic superhero shows. Uh, The biggest example, of course, being Batman the Animated Series made by Bruce Timm and Paul Dini. And kind of how their legacy carried over into our modern day world in so many ways. And to many people, it's the best adaptation of Batman. It's probably my favorite adaptation of Batman, especially for all ages. And DC just has such a special array of wonderful and bad films out there to really take apart and look at critically. Yeah, I would definitely agree that DC 
has Marvel beat in the television arena. There are more good TV DC adaptations than there are Marvel. Even with those Netflix shows, those are not very consistent to be kind. No. Um, but you even, uh, you put this in our show notes, Scott, and it's pretty interesting because we talked about how like, oh, DC very much is Batman, that apparently Batman has been in 35 films, not including cameo appearances, 10 live action ones and 25 animated ones, and 24 of those have been made in the last decade. Uh, it's safe to say that Batman is not just the most popular DC character, but maybe the most popular comic book character. Yeah, uh, don't freak out, people. Most of those are straight to DVD. Well, that's uh, true. But, but it really puts into perspective of how, like, Batman has always been constantly present in, like, modern-day pop culture. Uh, when The Dark Knight came out, of course, there was a big new explosion. And, and if you think about it, the only times animated Batman was on the big screen, it was Batman Mask of the Phantasm, and then the Lego Batman movie. And his sporting role in the Lego movie as well. The thing is, DC, what they do right is create iconic characters. You can go just about anywhere in the world with either a Batman logo or a Superman logo, and people are going to know exactly who it is. You can't really say the same about some of the Marvel stuff. And I 100% agree with you. Their TV game is on point. Movies? Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> that's that's a, the best way to describe it. Like Scott was talking about, that's more of a relatively recent phenomenon, actually, when you think about it. Especially with like Batman. I would say that only really started with around the time of like the Batman 1989 movie and that's because if you look at like footage of around that time they were literally shaving Batman into their hair that was such a massive important giant blockbuster of a movie that obviously affected not just blockbuster cinema but also just Batman's iconic imagery in general yeah and the only Marvel character that maybe comes close is arguably Spider-Man right? yeah I would agree yeah for sure I would definitely say Spider-Man just because Spider-Man is more of the colorful opposite to Batman. Spider-Man appeals more to children, but Batman definitely has more of the adult audience because it's treated such in tone. Well, Spider-Man also, like Batman, almost every, what, three to five years, there's a new cartoon version. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, nobody nobody touches Batman. And obviously you mentioned this, the animated angle of it. It's serendipitous you come on, Scott, because the first feature is Batman Mask of the Phantasm, which came out on Christmas Day 1993. So we're very close to the 25th anniversary here as we record. And obviously Scott mentioned a bit about Batman the Animated Series, which this is a continuation spin-off kind of thing of that. Batman the Animated Series was my introduction to the character, and I still think especially that first 100 episodes or so order that they did with that one animation style that they started from the beginning to around like what would be the second or so season. Um, is a great block of animated television with very few duds. Has some of the best interpretations of some of the characters that existed, like Mr. Freeze in that series. That pretty much reimagined Mr. Freeze to the character everyone knows today. Uh-huh. Um, and also introduced people like Harley Quinn, who's now a very popular character, obviously, into the comics as well as some of the recent features. Um, it's a great series, and I'm, Adam, I believe you would agree with that. Oh yeah, I absolutely love it. And to be honest with you, I didn't even mind the when they redesigned it. I even thought like the, some of the character redesigns really worked, but yeah, the first God, what would you what'd you say, hundred or so episodes? Perfect. They, they, I mean, literally, they're perfect. I was a little bit older, not much older. I was like nine or so, and but man, I was hooked. And I, those are ones that I can still watch today. Like I've tried to go back and watch the X Men cartoon. Oh my God! But no, the Batman one still holds up, man. I think 
Bruce Timm and Paul Dini exactly knew what they wanted to do with Batman and treat him. It's surprisingly grounded if you look back on it and it treats Batman more so as the detective rather than what the comics treated him as later on, like as this big figurehead and almost God character. But this version of Batman is really restrained and that leads to great character buildup. It's why this version has my favorite version of the Penguin or Poison Ivy. And a lot of people debate that Mark Hamill's Joker is the best one, which is hard to fight against. Well, yeah, because he, the genius of it is he's just as funny as he is genuinely intimidating and terrifying. Few people manage yeah. to balance that. Like, as much as Heath Ledger's Joker worked in The Dark Knight, it, he leans more on the terrifying than the funny, but Mark Hamill's Joker is the perfect mix of that. Oh, I agree, and I, I think in this feature, uh, you get the best of it. Which is really interesting because he's a supporting character and is only in about 12 minutes of the movie, but it's like the Beetlejuice effect where he's in it just enough and it's edited enough into the context of the story where they use him perfectly. In fact, the reason I like this version of the Joker is because they're limited to a PG rating. They know how to use him the most without going way too far. And there's just a very smart idea of what the Joker represents that can be handled in this really nice contained way. They skirt that line, though, as much as they can. They really do. Particularly whenever he talks to his robot wife inside of yeah. the this abandoned sort of World's Fair area like that he lives in. World, yeah. Right, like Tomorrowland or something like that. Yeah, where he is and like coming... They make him crazy. I mean, especially my favorite bit is when that dog comes up and he kicks it and he says, you can't be too careful with these weirdos around. I just love... What's so great is Mark Hamill, I watched a little behind-the-scenes documentary and he said it best that like, his inspiration for the Joker was when he saw the first picture, he just realized... Oh, he just has so many teeth he has to talk through. Like, that's what his voice is, and it's genius, because his smile is so wide, and it works perfectly for the character. Yeah, it's great. I, oh, meatloaf again. That's what I had for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and especially, like, his introductions, like, particularly when he shows up at the uh, city councilman's office, and he's just like, oh, and to think our tax dollars go to paying people like that. And the lightning cascades on his face. Perfect. Genius. But let's stop talking about this side character of the movie. And talk about... Because <laughs> right. what actually works is in most Batman movies, you sort of have, like, Batman's, like, the third most interesting character. And you have, like, the villains take over so much of the spotlight and are far more engaging as characters. Whereas this movie, I would argue, has the best use of Batman as actual major character and is the best one to actually develop him and Bruce Wayne. Easily the best Bruce Wayne on film that's fleshed out, that actually they give something to do. Of course, we talked about the Joker. You can't deny the power of Kevin Conroy as Batman and Bruce Wayne. He has more of like this quiet confidence to himself that makes him a lot more fun to watch in this very like neo-noir world that he just fits in so perfectly. And not to mention, Conroy does a great job of differentiating, not just between, like, Batman and Bruce Wayne, but even the different ages and the different ways that he presents himself as Bruce Wayne. Like he's... I know, it was so good. When he's the young Bruce Wayne, he comes off almost foppish and arrogant, like a know-it-all. And I still can't get over that they didn't use any kind of voice editing software in Kevin Conroy's voice, because it sounds like the same guy, but ten years younger, and I don't know how the hell he pulls that off. Right, he has, there's a lot more air, there's a lot more, as you mentioned, that kind of youthful confidence. But he also, in the more intimate moments, a lot more of that, like, innocent worry and not sure of where to go in life. Like, the best scene of the whole movie to me is when he's at his parents' grave and it's raining. And he says, like, the line that, like, makes me collapse, where he says, I didn't count on being happy. 
again. And that just, like, makes me sink in my soul. Like, oh, dude. Yeah, I think the great benefit of Conroy and just with the writing of this movie is that I don't think you have a better understanding of Bruce Wayne's guilt and his devotion to the cause of being Batman and trying to help his parents and just the inner conflict he has of finding happiness and love almost feels like so alien to him. It's like, this is not right. And he has to feel that need to approval. Like, is it okay if I not be Batman for a while? But I Officially how that contrasts with, we need to mention Andrea Beaumont, his love interest here, also easily the best love interest of any of the Batman movies, which isn't a huge hurdle to jump over. No, <laughs> so, not at all. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. Not, but she's by a wide margin, which, by the way, uh, voiced by Dana Delaney, who the production people like so much in this movie, they got her the role of playing Lois Lane on Superman the Animated Series, which is in the same continuity, along with like the Justice League cartoons and all the other stuff later on. And they have a great chemistry. I love their meet-cute feels perfect for Batman, where it's like, hey, how does Batman meet his love interest? Oh, they're both grieving over their parents. And there's a meet cute around that that's genius. That works so well. And then they do, like, kung fu on each other. (laughs) Right, (laughs) jitsu. And then they fall on each other, and Alfred looks like, I'm just gonna walk away. Uh, One thing I do want to say, and this is totally, it's on topic, but, well, they released the Phantasm toy without the mask on. So it was just her, and then the mask you could put on it before the movie even came out. (laughs) <laughs> spoilers lol uh, <laughs> which is a shame because I love how that's all constructed and the look of the phantasm himself as a villain completely new for the movie and I love Bruce Tim talked about in that behind the scenes feature I talked about that it was almost inspired by like the ghost of Christmas future from Christmas Carol kind of look or Grim Reaper phantasm as a character feels like death coming in and you don't suspect at all that it would be Andrea the whole movie Spoilers for this 25-year-old movie. Sorry. Well, it's like, here's a new character. I wonder who this new villain is. (laughs) That's true. If if you're a bit more adult, you can kind of piece it together. But regardless, what works about that is, one, the disguise feature of Stacey Keach's voice and how it's so So great. (laughs) Your angel of death awaits. Perfect. (laughs) But also, that works because it fits into Andrea's character, being that she's so driven by the death of her parents in a similar way of Bruce, but in her case, it's for vengeance versus his search for justice. It, it It's a great back and forth. It's, it, I love how pretty much, like, arguably the best Batman movie is really, like, it's a doomed sort of tragic romance, especially one that feels like Scott mentioned kind of the old Hollywood feel of it. This feels like a noir movie from, like, the 40s. The look of it, the style, it just happens to also have lush colors at the same time that work perfectly for it. You could almost see, like, oh, this could be, like, a Catherine Hepburn, Jimmy Stewart movie, like, the most awesome one. Well, the art style definitely attributes to that because everyone's kind of big and tough and the women are all very curvy. There's the darkness of it that kind of glooms over everything with the style. I'd even mention the composer, Shirley Walker, does a great job using like jazz and then heavy music at time to kind of contrast between things and the sound effects. It really gives you that immersive feel of it all throughout. And the thing I like so much about Andrea is that she's a character who actually like really challenges Batman which I think is missing in a lot of media. I think my one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when they're kind of having a conflict over each other, and Batman goes, but Andy, what will vengeance solve? And Andrea goes, if anyone knows the answer to that, Bruce, it's you. She knows, like, she just cut him to the core, and she, I mean, and then she feels like shit for doing it. 
Well, especially later on, she she also has like the sickest burden of just like, well, why are you being controlled by your parents like this? If anyone's being controlled by their parents in this room, Bruce, it's you. It's like throwing shade. <laughs> Ouch! It hurts, don't it? It hurts. This movie uses darkness so perfectly. When it's cascading in darkness, you really feel that black abyss. Right? Isn't it funny in the animated form where you want to see colors and stuff? The black works. Yet in live action, the black you're like, okay, enough, light this shit up. In the new DC movies, like, God damn it, I can't see a fucking thing. Why is everyone depressed? Well, that's the thing. It's like, this movie in the animation studio uses the whole rainbow, but all of it's in a dark tint, versus the current DC movies, which are just like, hey, let's put a dark filter over there. That that, that deals with it. It's literally an Instagram filter. To steer back into um, Batman Mask of the Phantasm, I I agree with what you guys are talking about, and even, like, we said the Joker is a smaller villain. I like even the usually what would be smaller villains here that take up a bit more screen time. Uh, we've got one, the city council guy who I mentioned, played by Hart Bachner, a.k.a. Hans Bubby. I'm your white knight fighting this dark this. knight. <laughs> yes, it's Elvis from Die Hard. Ah, show him the watch. Like <laughs> <laughs> you motherfucker. Yeah, who's, who's perfectly sleazy. Also, you got yep. Dick Miller in there. Uh, you got Abe Vigoda, of course, is the really old wheezy guy. I love how these mobsters almost are just more of like they're slasher movie victims. This kid's movie is about a serial killer hunting down a bunch of people and murdering them. Mm-hmm. For the whole family. What's yeah. fascinating is that it's called Master of the Phantasm. The Phantasm isn't in the movie a whole, whole lot, but the impact of just like how that presence like batman strikes fear in the heart of so many people and the way it kind of connects to everyone with the through line of adria and the crime connections to then this connection of this the kind of the, the really grisly implied murders that go on with the phantasm just make it so enjoyable i love the first murder because it's like oh mr incredible i ain't gonna save you from falling off that building <laughs> no no no, yeah, not. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> no thank god you know another thing too that you guys pointed out earlier the sort of 40s art deco style i don't know that the show or this movie would have worked as well without that design especially because it could have gone one of two ways honestly it could have looked more like a burton movie and i guarantee you that was talked about maybe even drawn up at one point and i'm very glad it didn't go that way or it could have been more definitely more of the comic book style this is completely its own style and I think that attributes to maybe even the fondness, the nostalgic fondness for it. Where, yeah, it feels like it's done in the 40s, but it also almost feels timeless. Because while it's in the 40s, there's still stuff in it that there's no way it could have existed then. Like, even, like, the design of the SWAT van. It feels definitely like it's of any time where they do combine all these different sources. Because I would argue that definitely the style of, like, the art direction for the two Burton movies and also the comics did inspire this, but also a lot of other influences... Because even, I like how you mentioned that SWAT van, the way it looks, but also you have, like, um, Harvey Bullock in a very old-timey cop outfit, in the flashbacks especially, (laughs) which I love. Like, there's so many styles that are just meshing together into this new project that I agree has a lot of, like, nostalgic tinges, but also feels of its own. It's the key importance of when you create a new art style. It's more important to focus on aesthetic than what's new or like the newest technology because that's what keeps your animation so distinct and that's what keeps gives it the flow it doesn't feel as concentrated on we have to make this look as great as possible in fact i think that ability to stick with it within the animation budget is what made the stop the bruce tim style last for almost dc's 
whole animation run. I, I mean, I could see that as a flaw because you're watching an animated movie in a, in a theater and it's not that different from the TV show. But otherwise, it's it's great to look at still. Well, that's the big thing I didn't even know until I was doing the research for this was this was originally meant to be a direct-to-video movie. And then the success of the show and then also the Warner Bros. people were like, hey, this looks pretty good. We want to make this theatrical. Okay, are you going to give us more time? No, you got to make this by Christmas, fuckers. <laughs> and they had to, like, redraw a lot of the stuff, especially for, like, the widescreen and all this other stuff. And you would never think it because this feels so cinematic. They put them under the gun, but it paid off, man, because this ne- never at once feels incomplete. If there's a tragedy about this, it's just that the biggest studios don't invest a lot of money in superhero animated movies. And although there's the new Spider-Man and Lego Batman, there's just not that big incentive because they think they won't pay off much. I mean, if there's a modern day reference, there's the Teen Titans Go movie, which Batman cameoed in, and it was only $10 million, which this being only $6 million kind of shows that they kind of want to push it, but not so much. Well, and the plus they dumped it at Christmas, literally Christmas Day, and it only barely made back its budget, basically. It was like, it right. barely broke even. And so they're like, oh, well, I guess we shouldn't do animated uh, superhero movies because this didn't do well. It's like, no, this could have been massive if you actually gave it the right time and marketing and all this other stuff. They just kind of dumped it out, which is a shame, because, correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, were there any big, like, theatrical superhero animated movies between this and, like, Lego Batman coming out? No, no. Yeah, I can't think of any. I think that's unless that's, you uh, count uh, like the Incredibles, but I don't. I wouldn't really count that. Yeah, it's not based well, on true. any existing. Right. It's honestly a shame, just because I I would love to see this more with these superhero movies because you're obviously so limited by like the live action at you know adaptation that you can do with these things that are drawn clearly on comics i i wish we would do this more and i hope the success of like lego batman or also recently spider-man to the spider-verse which is great and you should see it if you haven't i know i gotta see it i gotta see it i, I hate you tom <laughs> everyone does uh but that's true i wish they would do this with more superhero characters because the animated form could just breathe so much unique life that you don't really get like one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when bruce in the flashbacks first puts on the Batman outfit and Alfred's just shocked by it. That oh. says so much about how like being Batman isn't something that's like great for Bruce. It's more of like this burden he has to bear rather than something cool and awesome. I love how that's done, especially where he's all cascaded in shadow and you don't see him in full Batman regalia until like the final shot of that sequence. It's genius the way that's done. And it can yeah, only be done in animation. Yeah. Cause it would look silly. You'd be like, what? So we brought up the SWAT van earlier. Can I just point out the one thing that still makes me laugh? Even when I was a kid, it made me laugh, and it still does. Mm-hmm. Why, when the SWAT team members come out of the van, the whole time they're on screen, they're just going, hut, 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 Like, the whole time, even when they surround the building, everybody's going to know you're outside. It made me laugh when I was a kid, and I still find it funny. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if that was something Commissioner Gordon insisted on to self-sabotage the plan anyway. It's just yeah, like, go sure. hut, hut, hut. We need to all make sure we do hut, 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 all right? We, we trained with this, guys. I didn't get a hut out of that guy. <laughs> uh, well, well, I mean, that, that scene in particular where they swarm the building I think is fantastic because I love when they treat Batman as a human who has – possible flaws in fact i couldn't see that scene work in live action because batman's really on the edge of his seat like could he get away and he pulls that great diversion where he just shoots off his cowl and that's so 
cool. But yeah, that that kind of plays into the whole throwback aesthetic of the SWAT team. Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, but also there's other stuff like such a gorgeous shot went during the climax when that Tomorrowland uh, blows up and Joker's like laugh screaming as everything's cascading and exploding around him. And the way that also you mentioned uh, Shirley Walker, her score goes super operatic. That gives me chills like every time I see it. And that's another thing where like I would not be convinced you could do that convincingly in live action like at all. Let's go into our final thoughts on Batman, the Mask of the Phantasm. Scott, go ahead. Look, there's a reason why this time era of Batman was so fantastic. is because everyone down to the writer, director, the cast, the composer, the, art, the artist, knew exactly how to treat Batman in this perfect little way of making him a noir detective. And even though you could say that like this movie is essentially three episodes of the TV show combined, that doesn't matter because it's fantastic. The addition of the Phantasm and Andrea Beaumont is such a wonderful addition to the Batman canon that I wish she became a more current thing because she does so many things perfect to what I want to see to this world, to the character, and it's entertaining all the way through through as a slow burner, just as you watch the story unravel and this romance unravel. And it the ending is so bittersweet and lovely at the same time. Uh, it's a high recommendation for any any fan of animation or these kinds of stories in general. If you're a Batman fan... By God, get around to seeing it. But this is there's a reason why some people call this the best Batman movie, which after seeing it again, yeah, it's kind of up there. It's fantastic. Uh, Disney might sue for that, but yeah, yeah. Adam, go ahead with your final thoughts. I mean, there, this is one of the very few that, because a lot of animated movies I saw when I was a kid don't necessarily hold up with me unless they're done right. Most of them were not done right, in my opinion, when I was a kid. This one still is done right. Not even as a Batman movie, animated-wise, and just as a story. It's it's really, really solid. Um, and like Scott said, if you're a Batman fan and you haven't seen this, I mean, what, what the fuck are you doing? See this movie. It's a great movie. It's great characters that you know and love. And I'd argue the best representation of Joker on screen, period. And also, just the nostalgia factor is great, especially if you did see it as a kid. This is one that does hold up for anybody who's worried that it won't. And it's just, it's, you know, what, 80 minutes of just pure awesomeness. Not even 76 minutes long. 76 minutes. It's such a rich universe to adapt to film that I almost wish they would bring this version of the animated Batman back. Well, yeah, I mean, I agree with a lot of that. I I think Batman the Animated Series and the subsequent things that would happen in that DC animated universe from here to the Justice League Unlimited, I think is a great example of like how to really introduce somebody to the character and really get them immersed, especially for me as a kid. Like I, I saw this and regardless of like the, the heavier subject matter that happens here, I didn't think about that as a kid. And that's what's so great. That's why it holds up is because a lot of the deeper complex themes that happen, especially in Mask of the Phantasm, you get a lot more as you like revisit these particular ones. And that's why it holds up so well is because there's more to gain out of it than you did. Just like, oh, it's a pretty cartoon. Some of the other Batman stuff kind of has that issue that would happen. Like that wasn't Bruce Tim related necessarily. Even, you know, the Burton and uh, Schumacher movies have a lot of examples of that. As opposed to with these animated ones, I think they do such a great job of capturing the spirit of this character, what it really can express in when it's not hindered by the live action, when you can just do 
bigger, amazing things in this movie with a lot of the, the character stuff, the big set pieces that happen, the um, the voice acting, all that stuff just really combines together into, I would agree, the most consistent, engaging Batman theatrical film that's ever been released. And like we mentioned, all in 76 minutes, this isn't super bloated. Um, maybe some other more recent filmmakers could take a page from this and not make their fucking superhero movies so goddamn long. <coughs> Cough segue. <coughs> <laughs> Perhaps. 25 years ago, uh, fans would have gone, release the Dini cut! Oh, good God. Well, um, as good a point as any to uh, go far into the future to 2012 when our next feature was released, The Dark Knight Rises. There's a storm coming. You sound like you're looking forward to it. I'm adaptable. What are you? I'm Gotham's reckoning. You should be as afraid of him as I am. I won't bury you. I've buried enough members of the Wayne family. You don't owe these people anymore. You've given them everything. Not everything. Not yet. So Dark Knight Rises, which obviously there's a lot going into this one as well, where this is the third in director Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, which started with Batman Begins 2005, then The Dark Knight came in 2008, still one of the more celebrated, huge, successful movies of all time. And then Rises came out in 2012, uh, July 20th, 2012. Um, and I think it's obviously important to talk about our history with not just his trilogy, but also Nolan as a filmmaker, because this is the first Christopher Nolan film we've discussed on the show. Uh, Scott, what is your history with Nolan and his Batman? Well, kind of like I imagine several other people were last decade, I watched The Dark Knight. It blew my mind, and it was a game changer for superhero films and thrillers in general. And I was really impressed with Nolan. I went back to watch a few of his movies. And as he went along making movies throughout the time period, from making movies from then to even last year with Dunkirk, I think he is a great director, but at times I think is elevated too high on his own predilections. He's great. He does a lot of things well. I think the Batman trilogy is, oddly enough, the time he's probably been the most human in a lot of ways. But I think also at other times it kind of led to some of the more problematic elements that to how people treat Batman now. Yeah, and now, Adam, I, I want to hear especially from you because uh, you had some hot takes to drop after we did our pick and... About the yeah, no one in his movies. Uh, not necessarily about his movies as a whole, but about his Batman franchise. Now, I did really like Batman Begins. I liked it quite a bit. Um, I don't know if that was simply because, you know, Batman and Robin was the last outing. So it's like, oh my God, something different. But um, Nolan's movies, especially like post Dark Knight, I'm including Dark Knight in this, all feel bloated to me. Like, there's just too, they're too bloated. They're too long for no reason. I mean, everybody, you know, talks about the Joker in the Dark Knight. Yeah, he's in it for like 20 minutes. And then the rest of it is kind of garbagey. Same with this one. I love Bane in this one, but it's so long. For, I mean, it's ridiculously long. Interstellar is so ridiculously long. Memento, to me, is probably my favorite Nolan movie. I do really like Inception. But yeah, it's just, dude, there's, like I said, they're so bloated. And I get, so, I got so bored with this movie. Like, you come out, nobody realized that she was Talia. Seriously. All right, all right, all right. We'll get into that in a second. What? We'll, we'll get into that. 
Um, but I mean, I my my thing is obviously I agree with Scott. Like I, the first Nolan movie I ever saw was probably Batman Begins. And I remember at the time I did like it, but I was still so much more of like a Tim Burton stan at that time in my youth, where I'm just like, oh, I don't know, this is a bit more grounded. I don't know if it's quite as awesome as like the Prince covered Batman and all that other bullshit. Um, I've grown to really respect that one. That is very underrated, I think, especially when you consider everyone really came to dig the Dark Knight, and everyone fucking loves praising that movie a lot. And I really do love that movie, too. I think I've come to realize a lot more of its flaws in the last ten years or so, and I think I agree that his post-Dark Knight movies have definitely felt like he's given a lot of, just like, such huge creative freedom that he often has a lot of great ideas. Like, none of his movies lack ambition from that point on. They do yeah. not whatsoever. Even Dark Knight Rises, I would argue, is an incredibly ambitious movie. I just think, by that extent, he's given free reign and has all this ambition, but as with a lot of his recent movies, doesn't quite know how to hone it down. And that's really what is so disappointing about Dark Knight Rises, is that I don't think it's a terrible movie, but when it fails, it fails so hard, and it sucks because you can see what it's reaching for. I think, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you. I wouldn't call it terrible. It's like when you do something stupid and your parents are like, I'm not mad at you. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> That's marked for so mad, though. <laughs> you know, Adam, you didn't just say a hot take. You did a nuclear take, like the bomb at the end of this movie. And I'm going to throw one back at you. I love this movie. Oh, That's right. damn. That's all right. You know what? I don't care. Because <laughs> I'll say this. I don't think you guys are wrong in saying that this movie is bloated. And I would say that although Batman Begins is the most tight, I that's probably my least favorite of the trilogy. It's still a really good movie. But the thing I like so much about The Dark Knight Rises is that having marathoned the trilogy before getting on here, I could see the through line coming through with like the story Nolan wanted to tell with Batman in that way. I think he gets a lot right. Like, this is my favorite mature adaptation of Batman because he knows how to treat Batman different than other people. And that really lends a lot of credence, I think, to what makes this movie good. Because like we said earlier with uh, Bruce Timm's Batman, I think Nolan's Batman has a lot of highlights specific to this compared to anything else, particularly this version of Alfred and this version of Catwoman. Yeah, I will agree with you on this version of Catwoman. I do think Anne Hathaway kind of rocked the shit. But I'd argue that this feels like totally a paycheck performance for me, from Michael Caine. I don't know if I quite agree, because I think it's more that he's trying to make the best out of limited material where I think... Well, maybe that's the problem. So it comes a little over the top because he doesn't really have much to do in this one. Adam, I will not bury another member of the white right, family. He, he, cried, he cries so much. No, this has to still care about your future. My bigger problem with Alfred is just the fact that I think they give him so much opportunity to see, like, I love you so much, Master Wayne, and now I have to leave the movie. <laughs> like, at about, like, an hour, 15 minutes prior. Like, he just yep. leaves the movie for until, like, the climax. Like, oh, by the way, I'm here. This is a thing that also affects a lot of the other characters, but, like, the way Alfred just is, like, kind of tossed aside, it feels like no one's... And we should mention also, along with uh, Christopher Nolan, Jonathan Nolan, his brother, who's also responsible for, like, Westworld, the recent TV series, um, it has a writing credit on here. They're trying to juggle so many of these balls, and you can see where, like, they're falling on one side. It's like, that's fine! Fuck it! Let's focus on this! Let's focus on this! And I think that works a lot better for something like The Dark Knight, where I would argue that, despite being, like, two and a half hours long, I never feel the length with, like, a Dark Knight. I, I never feel like... It, it feels so streamlined and it feels so, like, elegant that 
certain problems with the story or the editing or some of the other stuff, it never really comes across to me when I watch Dark Knight versus this is a movie where I wish either it was shorter and cut out some of the subplots or longer and fleshed everything out. Where it stands yeah, right now, yeah. it just is like, it's this mess that I don't think quite achieves what it's going for. It's a super, like, abrupt ending that you feel like they definitely were like, okay, fuck, we gotta end this real quick. And then, then they just throw in that stupid stinger. Oh, my God. Uh, don't. Uh, it's the end of a trilogy. Uh, How's that a stinger? I think that's a beautiful oh, send-off to it. Well, look, we're look, gonna look. go to this same okay cafe look look i and wait every day for my old butler just so i can nod at him <laughs> get the fuck out of here with this i'm sorry batman's a human in this case and he's not the perfect god protector of gotham like he's supposed to be well you know i i want to hear a bit more from you scott especially about stuff like some of these narrative ends. do you feel like some of them don't work or do you feel what are the ones do you really do work in the movie I, I'm with you, Thomas. I acknowledge that the big problem with this movie is the middle is where it kind of drags. Somewhere after the point when Bruce is defeated and he's put in the hole where uh, Bane put him there, it, it just takes the movie, like, puts it in a standstill. And, of course, there's the obvious plot hole of, if he escapes, how does he get back to Gotham? Well, I'm, I'll be honest. There is there is no good excuse. I wish there was a scene showing, like, he could have gotten back there somehow. But... What's wonderful about this movie is that it does kind of answer and make everything circular from Batman Begins with the plot of Bruce Wayne is a man who wants Gotham to recover, but he just does not have the mental fortitude to do it, even with all the power he has as Batman. And this movie in particular, I think you get more of that inspiring side of it and different conversation, mostly coming from Anne Hathaway, who I think is a much better playoff character compared to Rachel in the other two movies. And you also have the great through line of Joseph Gordon-Levitt as John Blake, who is inspired by Batman. I think that's a really effective kind of through line about how Batman as one person can only do so much when Gotham is so fucking corrupt. I agree with a lot of what you said, actually. But the Joseph Gordon-Levitt thing, I, I, oh God. Oh, especially his tag at the end. Oh God. I love that. (laughs) Oh, well, that makes one of us. Are you referring to his real name, Adam, in that regard? Yeah, yeah, that was stupid. And I didn't mind, like, this young orphan who became a cop who was inspired by Batman. But just the fact of the matter is, like, he walks in. Yeah, I know you're Batman. Wait, what? Come on. Honestly, the more I thought about this, especially on this watch, I just realized, you know, you made such a big deal about Commissioner Gordon's son at the end of The Dark Knight. Why can't you just, like, make him that same character? Fucking... Right? Why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think if there's key problems in the storytelling here, I think Nolan set up things from the other two movies that just weren't a good fit. I don't think the eight-year gap is a very smart idea, especially yeah. because John Blake is not a follow-up character. I also think everything being hung on, like, the death of Rachel and Rachel's importance with everyone. I think the way that Bruce just kind of, when he gets back in the swing of things, it's really easy for him. And like the sense of time is kind of loose here. I, I do see the storytelling problems with that, but I think it pays off in the character motivation of Bruce Wayne's arc. The thing is with someone like a John Blake, it's an obvious issue that happens with a lot of Nolan characters is he's much more of like a symbol than a character, which immediately the big theme of these three movies is definitely Nolan is looking at it from the perspective of like metaphor and what does Batman mean versus him as more of a character necessarily. Because, and I say this with all respect, Mr. Nolan, but I feel like Christopher Nolan isn't quite human 
and is more like <laughs> a replicant from Blade Runner trying to like understand yeah. human feelings. One of those creatures from V. <laughs> less less that he's not menacing. I think he's more of just right. he he's like um, Sean Young in Blade Runner, where he's just like I want to understand oh, humanity, yeah. but I can't quite. He's Starman. He's Starman. <laughs> you know what? That's great. Yes, he's Starman. But I yeah. I I say more replicant because he kind of has the demeanor. I, I think of whenever I think of Christopher Nolan going to sleep, I imagine him in like an Ebenezer Scrooge nightcap. And he's just got like a candle on the windowsill. Yeah. <laughs> and like, he has to he has to go into his pod where brain fluid is pumped through him so we can learn while he's sleeping until he gets back out. Exactly. He feels it's more stark white apartment. <laughs> right, exactly. He feels more like that where he has a genuine interest in understanding humanity, he just can't quite reach it, and that's why his exposition dialogue's super awkward and his themes about love don't quite work, see Interstellar. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that's the thing, is that a lot of these characters are kind of more meant to, like, here is a symbol of what this is, rather than the character that kind of embodies that. Like, Blake is a great example of that. Any of the conversations where he's talking to Bruce Wayne, Bruce is looking like, huh, about the right build, the right behavior and model, I think he might be a good fit. Like, he's just, it just feels so much like he's just there to fill that space, but doesn't have a lot of, of character outside of that, really. He just feels like, oh, you're the perfect, like, clone. Almost like Terry McGinnis from Batman Beyond as, like, the very cold prototype of that character rather than the one that has a lot more of, like, the humanity to it. That's what I feel like whenever I'm watching, like, characters like him or there's a few others, like, especially the people that, like, meets in the hole or Talia, which we you referenced this. Like, I think oh. most of the actors are trying here. Marion Cotillard is awful in this movie oh she doesn't give a shit i think that's why it's so much more of bane's show but she's which... the hinge point of like the plot though for whatever yeah, reason right exactly well, yeah well yeah for the for the twist i i almost feel like it was stunt casting because it's like we want to get someone who will remind bruce wayne of rachel and i think marion cotillard was used for that purpose but Again, again, I do feel like that is one of the narrative flaws of this movie is just that he had so many ideas and he had to make this a trilogy and it would have been better if that that middle was just a bit a bit more tighter. I, I do acknowledge that like this is definitely the loosest of his trilogy. I do think he makes it work by the end of the movie. I have to agree with you again, Scott. The the middle with him in prison where he's trying to escape from that fucking hole. How many times do we have to see him fall? I also wonder the logistics of the hole just because like, wait, the big thing is to get out of this hole, you got to climb up some, some rocks and then make a jump. Right. Compared to like every other superhero where everyone is like a God level athlete. No one can make that jump except for one person. Okay. And it was a little girl. I wonder the logistics of you have your back broken and all it takes is some dirt bag and a hole to punch you in the back a couple times and you're good to go. The problem is that it's so drawn out when really it's just like, Chris, just make a Rocky montage. That's what you want this... That's what this should be. You don't need to draw this out for, like... What could be done in a two-minute montage is drawn out to, like, ten minutes of the movie. Of just like, oh, hey, we gotta train him to do this. We gotta have a Ra's al Ghul cameo. We have to have... Um, him watching TV, and we also have to keep cutting to Gotham and have long, drawn-out scenes of, like, how Gotham's collapsed, which I don't actually mind, honestly. I like that idea of Gotham kind of being starved off, but, I don't know, at the same time with the stuff with, like, Talia, if anything, the biggest problem with Talia is just that you could have just given most of her shit to Catwoman and it wouldn't have made sense. Because she's just another love interest. Half of it to Catwoman, yeah, half of it to Catwoman, half of it to Bane. 
what I think when you're talking about Sky Warrior, how this kind of ties into Batman Begins, I do agree he's definitely trying to do that, but doing it with Talia I don't think really is necessary. Like, you've already changed so much about Batman, you don't need Talia al Ghul. You really don't. You could have just had Bane be a member of the League of Shadows and him trying to carry on the legacy, but doing it in a different way. Like, we haven't talked about Tom Hardy enough, which right. definitely needs to change right now, because yeah, we yeah. all definitely agree that he is the best part of this movie. 100%. He's not my favorite part of this movie, but he oh, is what really the fuck? <laughs> look, look, look. I, when I'm admitting faults, they're not the right ones. Anyway, it's... Look, that, that voice bothers me. I think it's a distraction. I think his dialogue out of all the dialogue in this movie really works because he is pushing on the narrative themes that no one wants to focus on. And Hardy's performance is great. It just, like, kicked off this weird period of, like, Tom Hardy wants to disguise his face and do messed up voices for the rest of his career started with this movie. Yeah, that's very true. Because after this, he would do, like, Dunkirk and Venom, where it's just like, oh, my beautiful face, cover it. Cover it completely. (laughs) Except for my eyes, which I will say, that's what really works. It's the combination of, the voice is a bit ridiculous, but he puts so much fire and passion into his eyes and his head movements. Like, there's that point where he's doing the big speech about, like, Gotham is yours! And he, like, bobs his head back and forth, like, "Eh, eh, eh." Uh do what you will! (laughs) With the The eyebrows raised, yeah. Yes. The only bit that turned into an unintentional laugh was, he's doing that speech when he's beating up Batman, like, I didn't think I'd break your mind first. And then he does does the classic scene from the comic book, I break your body! And it's almost like a joke. Oh, no, dude, the part that gets me every time, ah, oh, yes, the dark, but I was born in it. I didn't see the light till I was already a young man, and then it was blinding. You're like, what the fuck? Where did that come from? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's worth noting that I, I had to do research on it because it is something that gets to me. Apparently, this was based on, like, a Welsh-Irish bare-knuckle boxer. Who... Yeah, I, yeah, I saw, he said that in special features, yeah. Because um, he based this voice off an Irish Spanish accent. It's so bizarre, but I think it just carries mm-hmm. through into like Hardy just wants to transform himself. Like the Revenant, he says things like pants. <laughs> Bane in the comics is Latino. Yes. Yes. So that was his way of still honoring it, but changing it. You know, it feels almost like watching it, I realized this feels like if person of actual Spanish descent try to do an impression of Highlander Sean Connery, where he's trying to kind of do his yes, voice, right. but also a Spanish accent. It feels like yeah, it's so filtered it through multiple times over. It um, so is. But we all have to agree that plane scene was legit. I know they had to go back and redub it, but the opening plane scene is still so beautifully shot and everything. It's awesome. Well, it feels honestly like the best Bond sequence that wasn't in a Bond movie. Great yeah, example 100%. of like how to like build up the tension and the risingness, and also we mentioned, of course, um, the the great casting. What I love about Christopher Nolan movies is that he puts great actors in very small parts. Like, who's the guy who's on the plane that's trying to interrogate these guys about Fucking, Bane? Uh, little little finger. finger. Yeah, little yeah, finger. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, who's the guy who runs the evil corporation that's battling Bruce Wayne? Oh, Ben Mendelsohn doing a Wallace uh, Shawn impression. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, which is so great. It's just like, why is she been doing sleeping with him? <laughs> yeah, it's like who's who's one of the sacrificial lambs of all the bad companies? Burn Gorman. Yep, I paid you. All the I do think this gives you power over me. I'm like, God damn it, I love Bane so much. All right, so I just want to get into it. Favorite Bane line? Um, I mean, it's hard. Uh, but you know what? Honestly, okay, I'll say this. I love the bit right before everything goes to chaos in the football stadium where he just offside says, it's a lovely singing voice. 
It's yeah. a weird, like, really human moment for Bane. I know. What really a, works oh. right before everything goes to shit. Scott? It's corny, but I do like the, like, oh, I'm Gotham's Reckoning. Because it's the it's it's kind of like the perfect explore, exploration of that character. Because in, like, the sense of symbolism with all three Nolan movies, a lot of it is about terrorism in a weird sort of way. And Bane, oh, 100%. And Bane, like, really gets this idea of, like, you see kind of why he's doing this because Gotham is so bad. And it perfectly summarizes what he wants to be. Right, I mean, all these movies' villains are basically, like, post-9-11 terrorists, pretty much, where you got... Yeah. And who are all cult leaders in some fashion, where you got, like, Liam Neeson as Ra's al Ghul in the first movie, has it, but does it mostly through just, like, his posture and his seemingly, like, superiority over everybody on a class level. The Joker in Dark Knight does that by basically just being an unpredictable, wild, mad, crazy man who everyone's just like, I have no idea what he's going to do next. I want to kind of follow him and see what happens. And then The Dark Knight Rises, I think Bane's trying to kind of balance both of those, where he definitely has a plan, but he also has this sort of huge, literally, body intimidation to him that he constantly shows off to everybody. It's a great, I think, that's where I think what you're talking about in sort of, like, the story evolution really works with, like, from villain to villain in each of these movies. But to get back on track, Adam, your favorite Bane line. Or perhaps he's wondered where you'd shoot a man before throwing him out of a plane. <laughs> I don't know why. Just his delivery makes kills me. What do you think you're doing? Crashing this plane? <laughs> I love it so much. Right, which is why when he ends up getting taken out as he does in the movie, it feels so, like such a whimper. So cheap. Yeah. So it's, cheap. It's very sudden. Tell me it shouldn't have been... Honestly, I know it would have been very grandiose for a superhero movie, but obviously Bane already whooped the shit out of Batman, right? I mean, it happened right, in the movie. Right. Then Batman comes back, you know, with probably knee braces all over his body because some, for some reason he kicked through a fucking wall when he gets one of those. He's beating him up, busts his gas, Tully fixes the gas, so you're like, all right, he's ready to go now. It should have been Batman and Catwoman versus Bane to take him down. It would have made the threat that much more real. Instead, she just pulls in on the goddamn bike and shoots him. Like, come on, dude. We just spent fucking three hours with this guy, and that's how you send him out. But even before that, they take the wind out of his sails by just like, oh, he was my protector. He was maybe He's my... an idiot, basically. <laughs> I, maybe he, my well, he's a he's an elevated flunky in that way. Hot take of all. They turn him, by the end of the movie, into everything he shouldn't have been, a.k.a the Bane from Batman and Robin. He's right. an elevated flunky by the end of the movie, and that sucks. Well, Why? To be, to be fair, though, Bane is often used that way. He's got to be, like, the most physically imposing villain who Batman can't w fight one-on-one. -on -one. And he's used that pretty often. In fact, I, it kind of cuts back to what's one of my favorite bits of this movie, is I like all the stuff with Batman and Catwoman so much, and how... They have, like, more in common than they would figure, which I agree, Bane kind of goes out with a whimper, but I like that it follows through with Catwoman's assistance is what helps Batman get through all this. The thing is, in the comics, when Bane first came out, he was as smart as Batman and stronger, and he he knew it, but he wasn't up to the level he thought he was to be able to face Batman yet, so he released all the inmates from Arkham, and they, Batman was, by the time Bane got to him, Batman was already exhausted from fighting everyone. And for me, they completely cheapen the character with that reveal where he's like, oh, he was just some fucking flunky, you know, and he flunked out of the League of Shadows and he blah, blah. Come on, man. Especially when I would argue he has at least 
more of an, a curious intellect that I really like about this movie, especially in recent years. The sort of warped version of populism that he presents yeah. out there. feels That feels like the most strikingly relevant thing of the whole movie. It's just how much, like, oh, I want to put it back into, you, you know, the people's hands, the citizens of mm-hmm. Gotham, when really it's just a way of ploying them into their own undoing, which I think is, that's a right. smart idea. Maybe some of the, you know, context of how he does it, like, say putting all the cops and <laughs> into the sewer and having them be locked up. Um, Matthew maybe... Modine. Oh, right, Matthew Modine's in this movie. I, right. He's wow. there. Yeah, <laughs> there. He's in it. And all this other stuff. I mean, it's a shame we haven't also talked about, like, one, Commissioner Gordon, Gary Oldman, who's still, I would say, pretty consistent from the yeah. other two Yeah, movies. I'd say it's probably the weakest of his, but he doesn't really get anything to do on it But either, I, I think... So. What? Because it's interesting, because the tie between him and the other person we haven't talked about while talking about this Batman movie our Batman, Christian Bale, um, is the fact that both of them are in a weaker state at this point. I think it's way more believable with Gordon, who feels like a guy who's, like, lost his family, who left him after everything happened, is the commissioner of a really weakened Gotham, ends up in the hospital a lot of this movie. But I think Oldman gains that, like, makes that fragility authentic, versus, I don't know if Christian Bale quite does that, and it's such... No, not at all a problem for me where I, he looks kind of emaciated. He kind of looks like he's trying to do the middle ground between um, the machinist and Batman Begins where he's like, I'm strong enough to where I could kind of be Batman, but I also look like I haven't eaten a lot. He looks like 310 to Yuma, Christian Bale. Yeah. And then he was still weight. in good shape, but he had a little bit of gaunt cheeks. Like after this movie, it's like, I'm going to go eat shakes and be in a David O. Russell movie. So he's got this cane. He basically can't walk anymore because he's been beat up so much. Through all his years of crime fighting, and I love that idea for superheroes. I, I think that's a great idea, and they do it best with Batman and Daredevil. So he decides to become Batman again because of Bane. He goes to see uh, Dangle from Reno 911, gets a leg brace, and he, and he can kick through cement. Uh, when you guys saw this movie in the theater, did, did anyone else just laugh? Like, what is Thomas Lennon doing in this movie? No, surprisingly not, because Thomas Lennon pops up all over the fucking place. Including in Memento, he plays a doctor. Yep, exactly. He's all over the place. But dude, come on. He gets a leg bracing kick through stone wearing a pair of fucking like fresh cut Nike runners. Get the fuck out of here. Again, I think that's an issue with the structure set up with this movie. With with, uh, Christian Bale's Batman, if you think about it, this is like the most physically and emotionally fragile version of Batman because he's so broken up about Rachel which, to be honest, is, is not a relationship I thought works very well in the other two movies. Okay. And, and, and like, with the whole eight-year time gap, I think that's another issue that's just been set up with the circumstances. But when he kind of slowly builds back into it, like, with the first half of this movie, which I really enjoy, all the build-up with him and Selena Kyle, that relationship, I think, really works. In fact, I would say that's probably the most human relationship Nolan has had up to his current career. Well, no, I think my trouble with it really is that I, I do agree that so much is pinned on Rachel and their relationship, which I thought was very inconsistent, about as consistent as the actresses were right. in those movies. Controversially, I like Katie Holmes more than Maggie Gyllenhaal. Yeah, I agree. In, in yeah, either yeah. Part. But Rachel is sort of the symbol more than she ever is a character. And I think it's honestly a problem with a lot of Nolan's female characters when you kind of look down some lines, sometimes that kind of works like Inception. Marion Cotillard, I think, uh, yeah. is better used as sort of that. Yeah, versus, yeah. Right, versus in something like this, like, Rachel's such a linchpin, and it motivates him to, like you mentioned, do 
do the eight-year gap, which I thought was always a problem because I love the ending of The Dark Knight and what, especially watching them in the theater, like, I, I still remember vividly how I was so amazed by that when I first saw Dark Knight that I stayed in the theater through, like, the, the credits and then the previews and then everything just to watch the movie again. I've never oh, wow. done that with any other movie Damn. before. But regardless, what I like about the ending of The Dark Knight is the fact that it feels more like, okay, he's going to be willingly let people think he's this, you know, sort of symbol to purity of Harvey sure. Dent as a mm-hmm. character. But you would figure he would, like, lie low for a bit, but then still be Batman, and people could keep guessing, you know, like they do in any of the mm-hmm. Batman stories, about, like, oh, man, it's the Batman. I hear he's, like, a piece of shit vigilante. No, he's trying to protect everybody. Well, fuck our first movie tonight. Yeah. You know, I was waiting till we would talk about this, but watching Mask of the Phantasm and then watching the entire Nolan trilogy, I'm thinking Nolan might owe the team at Warner Brothers a paycheck or two because it's not exactly the same, but there's a lot of similar narrative through lines. That's like, huh, this relationship with the criminal, the worry about the ever-growing influence of the mob, uh, a big accident that almost kills somebody and yet people disappear. A lot of similarities there. I mean, to be fair, he more than them, he owes Michael Mann a giant fucking paycheck. For because, everything. For everything. Because <laughs> <laughs> these Batman movies are totally just like, oh man, I love Michael Mann. Let's put a Batman suit on Al Pacino when he... That's, yeah, that's what 100%. he's trying to That's totally what he's trying to do. But anyway, with with Bruce Wayne, it's still just like, he's such a linchpin for like a lot of the thematic stuff in the movie, but he keeps making all these turns just based on, like we mentioned, his motivations about Rachel and this other stuff. As opposed to Batman Mask of the Phantasm, you really understand and grow to learn who Bruce Wayne is, and you can see why he made the choices he made as in his youth. Versus here, in his older age, I don't really believe a lot of the choices he makes, including to banish Alfred, to completely put... Uh, freaking Lucius Fox, Morgan Freeman in the dark and not give a single shit about his company at all. Even for the sake of some of the things like, you know, giving money to the orphanage and shit like that. Just the fact that he is so Howard Hughes closed off. It's like an extreme of what he should have done by the end of Dark Knight to me. I get where you're coming from with this. I agree that the Batman the Animated Series version of Bruce Wayne Batman is the best. But seeing the trilogy follow through as a whole about this being the most flawed version of Bruce Wayne, just with like how reliant he is on relationships and he's more isolated and fragile than normal, both mentally and physically, I think it kind of ties through with where the ending goes and how he decides to explore how he wants to treat relationships and wants to treat the rest of his life, which is honestly kind of refreshing in the grand scheme of Batman. Okay, so my two major problems with this franchise as a whole, he fakes his own death, he leaves, and he's in Europe somewhere with Selena Cow, right? So Gotham is in fucking shambles. He's gone. Fuck it. Like, I need to be myself now. That's not Batman. Two, if a Batman movie and your weakest characters in it are both Bruce Wayne and Batman, it's not a good Batman movie. I cannot get behind him in this movie, or even a lot in The Dark Knight. Some of it, yes, but it's that goddamn voice in The Dark Knight that really does it. It's it's, it's not that bad. I honestly, honestly, from watching them out of your mind, you've been arguing the padded cell. The people of Gotham just showed you what they could do. You're like, get, what the fuck is it? Come on. Even if, all right, all right, Scott. Even if you can understand what he's saying and you get the idea that Bruce Wayne is changing his voice in order to become disguised it as Batman. And I'm okay with that. That's the voice you choose? 
He says doing a gruffer version of Bale's own voice, but Bane's is so bizarre, especially considering the Latino presence. I I think it's just I think it's distracting. So I'm going to make another controversial opinion talking about Mm -hmm. this movie. And the criticism I hear to this movie, because you aren't the first person I know who doesn't like this movie, but it's relevant to another recent pop culture movie that I feel like is very relevant. This is like The Last Jedi. Because the biggest complaint I hear about both those movies is this is not my version of so-and-so. And it's like, no, it's not. In fact, but that's what I enjoy about it. Well, I enjoy that. Hold on, let me explain. I enjoy this version of Bruce Wayne who is flawed, who is fractured. And yes, he gives up his, his life to protecting Gotham under the protection of Robin, but he goes off and finds happiness, which is very new and something I think really pays off with the ending of this movie, especially with what Alfred says. I think there's such a joy to that and something that Nolan brought to the character that no one else has done. And it's something I greatly prefer over the more recent adult versions of Batman, where he is a god who knows everything, can't be defeated. I get tired of that very easily. I So I think what... Nolan does with this entire trilogy and from watching it through, I see where the narrative through line pays off. I think it executes it thematically really well. The thing about it is the character where, where you say, you know, he's a God of Gotham and all that. I agree with you, but that's not nothing new. That's been that in the comics for 40 plus years. I mean, I'm not against showing Batman with flaws or in a different way because it, that needs to happen. But the core crux of Batman is that Batman, for all intents and purposes, is a crazy person. He cannot stop being Batman. He has to be Batman. Whether it's his thirst for vengeance, and now it's gone beyond that. Bruce Wayne doesn't exist anymore. It is only Batman. Batman's sole goal is to protect the people of Gotham City. Now, I'm okay with him maybe moving to another city, or even, I would have been happier with him dying, protecting Gotham City. I would have been okay with that. But for him to quit is ridiculous. That betrays the character as a whole, even from Nolan's first movie. Doesn't he do that, though, in, like, Batman Beyond? He's old. He can't do it anymore. And yet, what is he still filling all his time with? Training somebody else to take up the mantle. But that's if you count Batman Beyond. But if you count The Dark Knight Returns, the Frank Miller book, he's in his fucking 60s still fighting crime. He comes back to fight. That's, for me, my whole thing is, and I hate to bring up the Joker again, what I love about Batman and the Joker, they're both crazy, one turn left, one turn right. To quote this trilogy, their unstoppable force meets an immovable object. I don't necessarily mind if they kind of take different routes with the character, kind of flirt with the idea of Bruce Wayne kind of quitting. Like I mentioned with Mask of the Phantasm, that has one of my favorite examples of that, that my favorite scene is where he contemplates quitting being Batman and how much that hurts him. As opposed to, I do agree with what Adam's talking about in terms of it does feel a bit more easy in this one. And more importantly, he makes decisions that less, you know, or like, oh, hey, Batman wouldn't do that. Batman wouldn't do that. More of just like, I don't know if this Batman would go so far to like, hey, fuck you, Alfred, get out of here. And then not, really even bring attention to him during the climax that much or you know would be so humstrung on like Rachel that he would like do all this because it's it's basing such a big decision on the character of like changing that core concept on 
very flimsy ground. I appreciate what they're attempting to do, but I don't think ultimately it supports itself that well. I, I think he makes some certain decisions in Batman Begins and the Dark Knight that feel like might be out of character for Bruce Wayne to some people, but I think work for that version of the character. Like when he does the whole um, thing in the climax of like, hey, I've sunk myself into every electronic device in Gotham. A bit silly, but at the same time, I feel like that feels like what Bruce Wayne in this universe would do. About And mm. it feels like a controversial decision that even Lucius Fox is like, what the fuck are you doing? No, but I had to do this in order for justice. He's that obsessed with justice that he'd be willing to do something that criminal. Versus, I don't know if they make as many like big turns that still feel convincing about the character for this ending of the trilogy. I do see I do see that. I think Nolan's biggest problem throughout this whole trilogy was just going, well, that person was motivated through love. Well, Nolan, you don't understand love very well. (laughs) (laughs) Scott, go ahead and spin this off into your final thoughts. So considering how much Nolan's movies became such a game changer for just the world of cinema and superhero movies in general, I think it's worth looking back to explore the trilogy, not just The Dark Knight Rises, but considering like how maligned Dark Knight Rises was at the time and still is now, I think it deserves some kind of reassessment, some kind of reflection, because he does bring a, a bit of originality to Batman mythos that it hasn't been seen before that I think really stands out. I think as a trilogy, it ends on a really emotional note that I really enjoy because it's something I don't think is reflected on enough in Batman media. And like I said, I think there are big high points here relating to Alfred, Selina Kyle, Bane, and just, although I can't admit to the flaws, like the pacing kind of drowns down, there's some plot holes there and there's some character work that is is very half-baked, unfortunately. And it's something I, I appreciate in the grand scale of things, considering where the DC universe has gone, to really see how this world built its own vision of Batman that still stands true. Adam? I think this movie's a bloated mess. Um, Tom Hardy as Bane, I think is fantastic. I think it's shot very well. I think the score is pretty good. I just think it's, it's a way too long. They introduce all these new characters and like the thing with Miranda, obviously she's fucking tally uncle. I mean, I knew it right off the bat. Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I, I like what you said, Thomas, he's a symbol of something, but he's on act. He shouldn't be an actual character. Why not have it be Jim Gordon's kid? Somebody else who was already introduced a movie before. Why make it someone new? You already have a thorough line. And they don't even take advantage of it. I liked it when I saw it at the theater. Because it was gorgeous at the show. Bought it the day it came out, and I immediately changed my mind. Because this movie on a giant screen is gorgeous. And it sort of made me forget about all the flaws. Ultimately, I think it's boring. I think it's a bloated, boring movie. Well, I mean, I had a similar experience when I first saw, like, I was a super, like, Christopher Nolan fanboy. Not quite online idiots who do stupid shit in the name of Nolan, which is a shame that they do that, because it really tarnishes that dude's reputation in certain ways, but that's a whole other discussion. I really did love this when I first saw it in the theater. I saw it several times in the theater, because I'm like, no, this is great. The Batman trilogy, so awesome. Chris Nolan. And with each watch, I do like it less and less, but... It's never to a point where I completely dislike this movie. I think it's it's like, to compare it to another trilogy of celebrated movies, um, it's The Godfather 3, which is to say, I don't hate Godfather 3 at all. I think it has very similar problems to this movie, where it's very ambitious, it has a lot that it's trying to do, and I respect what it's trying to do. It's just the execution feels a bit 
flimsier, feels a bit weaker, because I can see what it's trying to do in carrying on the themes from the first two movies, and the sort of grand scale that it's trying to accomplish, and I think they're really good performances that are strewn throughout, and I, but I don't think it ultimately comes together that well just because it's trying really hard to wrap up all the themes that were done in Batman Begins and Dark Knight, and credits all the ambition, credits all the attempts, but it still ultimately becomes just a smaller whimper of a note to end what I thought could have been an incredibly consistent trilogy just ends up being a mediocre execution of a lot of great ideas just for the record I want to clarify I think the Dark Knight is the best in this trilogy I would say Batman Begins and this movie are equal I can admit that Batman Begins is a better made movie but this has more I enjoy well and we'll end it there because for the love of God we have to end it somewhere Um, kill me (laughs) <laughs> no, no, no. Agree to, agree to disagree. Agree to disagree. Okay, okay. Thomas, we'll talk after. <laughs> Never again. But let's get into, uh, we asked you all out there via our Facebook and Twitter pages at DEDBpod about your favorite and least favorite DC adaptations, because this wasn't just supposed to be a Batman show, guys. But uh, James Rodriguez uh, says, despite the array of live-action takes uh, we've had about Batman, the absolute best adaptation still remains to be Batman Mask of the Phantasm, a compelling mystery mixed with character conflict, and a genuine romance leaves us with one of the most exciting and tragic films ever released by DC. I would also put a mention uh, for Patty Jenkins' Wonder Woman, which I caught while feeling tired at a midnight screening and left feeling rejuvenated and in awe of how well-served that character was. In regards to worse, nothing eclipses the garish disaster that is Catwoman a film whose costume was designed by a blindfolded Edward Scissorhands, centers around a villainous plot about skin cream, which believes getting the abilities of a cat includes riding a motorbike, kicking a door off its hinges, and playing a mean game of basketball. Ugh. Yeah. That's ended up pretty well. No (laughs) fighting that. No. And I mean, I think we've talked about this with Wonder Woman, though, Adam, off mic, that it kind of fits in the same way of, like, a Superman the movie, where... Most of the movie, it's a pretty good but flawed movie that is so strengthened by the lead performance. Because Gal Gadot is great. Yeah, I agree. I have a lot of problems with that movie, but it's the best Wonder Woman movie that you could have hoped for. Let's put it that way, because she is fucking fantastic in it. Wonder Woman is a really good movie, and it surprised me. And I think it's the thing DC needs to focus on right now. Oh, yeah, they know. They are aware, oh, they believe know. me. Yeah, they, oh, yeah. Fuck they are fully aware of that. Matt Kozlowski says, uh, Favorite Superman 1978, Batman the Animated Series, Justice League the Animated Series, Green Lantern First Flight, Justice League Doom, uh, Justice League Dark, Constantine the Series, Wonder Woman, Worst, Batman and Robin, Jonah Hex, Catwoman, Batman v Superman, Killing Joke, Batman, Gotham by Gaslight. Well, he kind of just pegged everything that I agree with for the most part. Um, you know, the Justice League Doom movie, I, I didn't really care for. Mm-hmm. Uh, Green Lantern First Flight as well. I mean, it might have just been the animation that I didn't like. Justice League Dark, I just watched recently. It's on Hulu. It's pretty good. And I have not watched the Constantine series because I just, I can't, I can't do it. Yeah, yeah, lots of good recommendations there. Always can recommend Batman the Animated Series and Justice League the Animated Series. They kind of follow up after each other. Batman and Robin I don't hate just because I think it's pretty harmless, but Batman v Superman is one of the maddest I've ever probably been in a theater and leaving it, especially because of seeing how this franchise handled terrorism so well and Zack Snyder just completely pooed in his hands and smeared it in our faces. No. 
Yeah, though that's an example where that's a super ambitious movie, but also no. <laughs> just <laughs> the, a, a lot of those turns just feel like, well, you know, at least it's a bit more memorable. I can say I I think especially watching I watched the what was it, the director's cut version, whatever the yeah, fuck. Me of, too. And yeah. I'll say it's a slightly better movie in terms of it makes a bit more sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah, but I'll take that over stuff like a Suicide Squad or a Justice League that feel so hobbled together from so many different voices versus, mm-hmm. to his credit, Batman v Superman's pure Snyder for all yeah. the good and bad, mostly bad. <laughs> that comes with that. Primarily bad. Mostly Primarily. his hating of Superman. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It, it's it's weird how, like, in the context of so many of those other movies, with the exception of Wonder Woman, Man of Steel is technically one of the better ones because it feels like the most cohesive vision. Right. <laughs> which is with all its flaws it still feels at least a bit more cohesive also of the directed video animated movies one that I think gets lost in the shuffle deserves more love Batman Year One Batman Year One's awesome really good that's I think one of the few times where the animation style actually matched Frank Miller's um, actual designs in the comic book really well and feels the truest mm-hmm. versus like some of those other ones they can't quite achieve that same style We'll we'll talk a bit. Someone mentioned about Killing Joke um, that we need to go into a bit. In fact, I think here, it's our next one. Yeah. Yes, Jonathan Habden McHale, friend of the show, says uh, my favorite DC adaptation is V for Vendetta because its themes of government, society, and freedom resonated with a 19 year old me living in the Bush era. That that resonance hasn't left me, especially in our current era. My least favorite DC movie is The Killing Joke. Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill's return to the DC animated universe was wasted on a poorly animated flat recreation of the most infamous Batman comic that is preceded by Bruce Timm's disgusting fan fiction. I mean, I can't agree with him more. I thought the horrible love angle between Batman and Batgirl was completely ridiculous. There was no need for that at all. I understand maybe why they did it thematically, just so you would care more when he shoots her, but unnecessary. Because if you're watching that movie, you already know who Batgirl is. There was no need for any of that. And V for Vendetta, well, I do like the movie. Graphic novel's better. Uh, yeah, I like V for Vendetta, although I haven't seen it recently. I 100% agree. Like, as much as Batman v Superman made me angry, The Killing Joke is the worst movie. It's based on great source material, and it even has all these things you think would work with Bruce Timm and Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill, and it's so flat. It's so boring. It's so under-delivered and half-baked, and that first 30 minutes is just such a train wreck and makes the story almost retroactively bad because even though the comic book kind of created some problematic elements of like, let's injure this person. Uh, this took it to kind of a disgusting level. It's why I don't know if Bruce Tim could do Batman again in, in 2018. Yeah. Cause that, it feels like that's been a predilection of his in the years since Batman, the animated series is him and Batgirl. For some reason, I never get why. And especially in this context, like with that opening bit, that's just like, total character assassination on Barbara Gordon. And Batman. Well, that's true, and Batman. <laughs> even yeah. Kevin Conroy can't even muster up the energy. It's like, you haven't been taken to the edge. You haven't been made mad enough by what people can do to you. Yeah, it's really sad. When it does such character assassination to both of them, and then by the end of that first 30-minute bit that's completely unrelated to the killing joke, when she ends up getting shot and crippled, it feels like the movie is almost like, well, she doesn't have sex with Batman anymore, so she's useless. Let's get rid of her, right. which is so much worse. Yeah. Uh, and also, even when you get to the Killing Joke recreation, it is poor imitations of doing Brian Boland's art in that animation. Mm-hmm. 
you see the budget everywhere. There's points where they loop the animation. It's like, is this a fucking Hanna Barbera cartoon? Oh, I know it's atrocious. Yeah, dude. it's it's bad. It's really bad. Um, Brian Kane has this to say about. I feel like everyone mostly agrees on the good and bad movies. So I'd like to highlight the execution of one scene in Man of Steel where Superman takes flight for the first time. It's a standalone moment that also highlights the great score that the movie has. It's a rubbish movie otherwise, though. Yeah, I completely agree yeah. with that. I, I, I agree. I wish it was prettier, but it, it's it's a good scene. I like... To be, honest, I, to be honest, I got pretty lucky with our bad movie, considering Hot everything take. else that could have been there. Hot take. I don't hate on Man of Steel. I, I kind of like Man of Steel. The big thing I like about Man of Steel is Michael Shannon's the villain, which I, I always Yeah, he's do. kick-ass. Yeah, he's great. I think, honestly, like, the, my trouble with Man of Steel is I think the first half really works. It feels like it's reinventing the Superman mythology, but in a way that still works for the character, kind of. And there are points like that scene that Brian was referencing, or also the interrogation scene with Amy Adams, mm-hmm. where you really see, like, man, Henry Cavill could have been a really great Superman if they let him be. Oh, yeah. In my opinion, that movie dies when Pa Kent goes up in the hurricane. Yeah. I have a lot of problems with that. Sac- sacrificing his life for a dog who then is replaced later on in the movie. Yeah. yeah. But once again, like Adam said, we're not going to get into that right now. (laughs) Because God knows, this has already gone pretty long. And then our final feedback, that I think sums it up pretty well. Will Torres says, favorite, that one Batman movie. Least favorite, that one Batman movie. That's accurate. Yeah, pretty accurate. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, uh, thank you all for that feedback. We also want to thank a couple people before we head out. We want to thank Chris Oliver for the music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. Thanks to Emily Scarter for the art for our show. She accepts commissions at 502rs.com slash eescarta. And of course, thanks to our lovely guest, Scott Johnson. Scott, uh, you had a little bit of a promotion that also tied into our own episode, in addition to your plugs right now, right? Uh, yes, of course. So... If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I go by Scott PJ Thoughts. That is Scott with two T's, letter P, letter J, Thoughts. Uh, if you follow the Stardust for movie reviews, you can see me there and some more of my fun opinions at uh, Silky, that is Silky with an I-E, PJ. And if you enjoy craft beer, I write for a website called porchdrinking.com where I do beer reviews, home brewing, and also fun comparisons of pop culture and beer pairings. So... In honor of what I usually do this, I thought I would do it for the two movies here. For Batman Mask of the Phantasm, I recommend Founders Porter. Now, if you don't know what that is, it Founders is a legendary craft brewery. Delicious. Oh, it's so good. It's a world-class beer that's easy to get. It's very approachable. And I think it's kind of one of people's early introductions to dark beers that's really easy to get behind that you know it's just quality all around. So I think that's perfect for how good the Batman the Animated Series and Mask of the Phantasm is. And for The Dark Knight Rises, I would recommend Stone Brewing's Totalitarian Russian Imperial Stout. Totalitarian, that's Bane written all over. And like this movie, it's a very ambitious beer. It's bourbon barrel aged. It's heavy. It's strong. It might put you on your ass, but you'll get an unforgettable experience drinking it like you will watching this movie you know i can't agree with you more about founders especially because i'm a michigan baby i love founders founders is fantastic oh yeah we got founders griffin claw we got good breweries out here so i I really like the uh cut of your jib when it comes to your uh your idea there it's a great idea yes and of course follow scott for all sorts of other beer recommendations this man knows his craft beer quite well Feel free to at me on Twitter. I'm like, what beer should go with this movie? I'll do it. I got nothing better to do. 
<laughs> yes, and also uh, drink responsibly. Legally, we have to say that. <laughs> if if you are oh, under man. 21 and listen to this podcast, wait. <laughs> Speaking of uh, following Scott on Twitter, you can also follow us on Twitter at DEDBpod. That's also our Facebook page. And every Monday we post up our feeler about, like, hey, what's your favorite thing related to this upcoming topic we're doing? Um, and you can also send those over to our email, a bill at gmail.com. Uh, or you can also at me... I'm also on the Twitters at not the who's Tommy. Uh, and then I also post up reviews over at marianitomas.wordpress.com. Um, if you go over there right now, you could see that article I referenced about Clint Eastwood. I was doing earlier as well as I did a review about Spider-Man for the Spider-Verse. And also not too long after you're listening to this, I will have put out a review of Aquaman. That'll be up Uh-oh. because I'm seeing that early. I haven't seen it yet, but man, that was a movie. <laughs> That's a something. That's that was a movie. A- and uh, you can also find Adam in the dark corners of his own bat cave, which is like, what, a rec room, right? Wherever I can place a foosball table. <laughs> Where's the trigger to turn the podcast on? <laughs> well, no, we're turning this podcast off in a bit. But you should also pull that trigger and subscribe to us on iTunes, rate and review the show to give us more visibility. Or if you're on Spotify or any other podcast place where we might be, or on YouTube, just share and review and rate and all that other stuff so we can get... The attention we deserve, but not the one that we need right now? I don't know. It's kind sure. of what we want. Right, but, but we maybe don't deserve at the same time. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Not. You be the judge of that. And on that note, guys, let's uh, go ahead and disappear into the shadows. Good night. Goodbye.